Hey, Jay, is Professor X dead? Is this a Zen Cohen? No, I mean, maybe, but I was serious. No. No, I'm not serious, or no, he's not dead. Is Professor X ever really dead, Miles? Is that a Zen Cohen? No, I mean, maybe? But no, no, Xavier is not dead. Right now. As far as I know. So Cyclops didn't kill him. Look, Cyclops' culpability for that is absolutely debatable given the Phoenix situation. But Xavier was definitely dead. To what extent he's ever dead? So he wasn't dead. He was sort of dead. Sort of dead. His body was dead, mostly. His mind was imprisoned by the Shadow King on the astral plane. Wait, so his body was only mostly dead? Well, during Sixus, the Red Skull stole part of Xavier's brain and fused it to his own, so that at least was probably technically alive for a while. I see. And his mind was on the astral plane. Yeah, for a really long time. It works differently there. Death? Time. So like the Marvel Universe. I'm pretty sure the astral plane is within the Marvel Universe. Man, religion's got it so wrong. No, no, I mean, the astral plane as portrayed within Marvel Comics is within the Marvel Universe. Ah, and he's still there. Xavier. No, he's out. But the Red Skull stole his brain. Only part of it. Anyway, he got a new one. So he's doing the Martha Johansson brain in a jar thing. What? No, no, he's got a body, too. The whole package. Huh. Thank goodness for Shi'ar technology, right? Not this time. He didn't grow it. He took over someone else's. That seems morally questionable. If it's not consensual. Who would consent to Professor Xavier taking over their body? Well, uh, maybe a master thief with a shadowed past. Not Gambit. Phew, no, no, who knows where that body's been? No, this thief might actually even be better, or at least is within their own considerable ego. They are definitely the greatest thief in the world. So what's her name? From the Wolverines, with a pet fox. No, not in the world. In the world. Capital W. The, the miniature time-condensed one. Wait, no way. That means that it'd have to be... Phantom X. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 193 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Happy Pesach. Uh, oh, it, it totally is, yeah. Or at least, you know, as we record this, as it comes out, not so much. No, right, because two-week lag time, but still. That thing we were talking about with Marvel time, I think there's podcast time as well. But it's definitely not the same. Well, podcast time moves at the same rate as regular time. There are just inconsistent lags. That's reasonable. Uh, anyway. Anyway, so we are back on Uncanny X-Men, which means that we are following along for now with Gold Team. And you know what that means. What does that mean? Bishop. Hell yeah, Lucas Bishop. Okay, so we're going to get more to this later, but this right here is where I think the gold team really clicks. Now, don't get me wrong, it's still very 90s with all the good and bad that entails, but the good, I think, is really on display for the first time in Uncanny X-Men since the relaunch, like right in these issues we're covering today. Yeah, Bishop is terrific, and Bishop's arc with regards to his relationship with the X-Men and the revelations that he experiences over these issues are, I think kind of 
fundamental character shift moments, really, really, really substantial parts of what make him the character who he is throughout the 90s. It makes me wish that Bishop hadn't been mostly forgotten for most of the eras since then. Um, he was around. There, there was definitely some evil, and there was some adversary stuff, and there was some chasing hope and cable through the future, but not in that order. I know, but that was arguably character assassination as much as it did fit the plot. Ooh, and there was District X, which was actually pretty, pretty neat. Still, not enough. I wanted him to be way more central than he was. But you know what? That's the glory of covering 1992 Uncanny X-Men. He is totally central. Arguably more than any other character except for Storm. Given that we're juggling a lot of books right now, Miles, you want to do the honors? Absolutely. Previously on... Uncanny. X-Men. The X-Men have split into two squads. Blue team stars in adjectiveless X-Men, while gold team stars in Uncanny X-Men, the book we're going to be looking at today. On the gold team, Storm is the leader, as she should be. We also have the now codenameless Jean Grey, Colossus, Iceman, Archangel, and sometimes Forge. Forge is like the Y of the team. Exactly, in terms of vowels. Now, a supervillain named Fitzroy came back from the future to work with Shinobi, the sexy, if confused, son of Hellfire Club leader Sebastian Shaw. Fitzroy brought with him 92 other super criminals from the future. They killed the Reavers and the Hellions to show how badass they were and to create later plot hooks. But they were pursued from the future by the Xavier School Enforcers. These are not, as one might expect, hall monitors from the future, but mutant future cops. These are Bishop, Malcolm, and Randall, and I love them all. In the future where they come from, the X-Men are legends, and Bishop practically worshipped them growing up. So he didn't believe initially that the X-Men he was coming into contact with were really his heroes. Continuity was all wrong. And so he immediately launched into a fight. Now, everybody escaped on both sides, or I guess all three sides, because there were Fitzroy's people too, and the XSE continued to hunt down the remaining criminals outside of the watchful eyes of the X-Men. Meanwhile, the gold team was sucked into a parallel dimension where they found the not-actually-killed-while-a-cosmonaut brother of Colossus, the one and only Mikhail Rasputin, who had been brewing wine and being an ambiguously powerful mutant. They brought him back to Earth-616, and, you know, everyone lived happily ever after until they didn't. Which it didn't take very long for that to occur. But now, let's go even further back and look at some relevant backstory that's going to tie into this arc. Let's go back to Life Death. So, Forge and Storm, the former being a technologically inclined mutant and the latter being, well, Storm, were romantically involved. That was beautifully drawn by Barry Windsor Smith in, as you mentioned, Jay, the classic story, Life Death. We've covered Life Death in a previous episode of the podcast, which we'll link to in this episode's visual companion if you want to go back and refresh your memory. Now, this relationship didn't last for a lot of reasons that involved things like a power-negating gun and some gaslighting and some Vietnam War-related illusions, but later on, they did end up spending years together in yet another parallel dimension where humans never existed until Storm died but was immediately revived before Forge didn't know at the end of Fall of the Mutants. When they met back up, she'd been de-aged into a child, which was pretty awkward. Now, Storm has been an adult again for a while now, but since then, she and Forge have had scant time to catch up, let alone check in about the status of their relationship, which brings us to Uncanny X-Men, number 287, Bishop to Kings 5. Okay, I straight up love this issue. In my opinion, if you wanted to find one single issue that epitomized 90s X-Men at their very, very best, I think you could make a solid argument for it being this one right here. 
I actually straight up love this whole arc. I think it clicks really well. It's a really good comics, really solid. The creative teams are all over the place, but they're all really strong and they work together remarkably well. And Bishop's story, at least, is terrific. The other ones, well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about those as we come to them. But at least the center of what's going on is, is really engaging, really fun, and honestly, really well conveyed. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned the creative teams being all over the place. This time around, for 287, Jim Lee does the plot, Scott Lobdell does the script, and John Romita Jr. does the pencils. And five inkers, which tells you something about the schedule this was on. But Romita is such a good fit for this issue. I gotta say, like, this is him at kind of an intermediate stage. He's starting to get into the blockiness that's going to define his art later, but he's not quite there. And here it's still really stylized, and he's still pretty expressive, and it works relatively well. Now, John Romita Jr., to remind everyone, did a pretty sizable run on X-Men in the early 200s or thereabouts. Oh, the numbers. I'm sorry. I was, th- I was going to say, no, it was, it was in the, the late 80s, wasn't it? <laughs> right. Not quite back as far as the early 200s year-wise. Anyway, we open with a legitimately awesome splash page of the XSE blasting the living crap out of a crowd of bemulleted future criminals in a dance club. I kind of wish we could hear the music because I think this would actually be some pretty excellent comic relief to have some silly, ravey early 90s stuff. They are very much established in this scene as future X-types. Like, they're quoting Beast, they're invoking Cyclops and an oath. They also swear by sound effects, which I really love, like Snicked and Bounce. But um, I want to talk a little bit about, about their quoting Beast, because they're actually quoting Beast paraphrasing something else. Um, and they're, they're quoting a book him from a book called The Wit and Wisdom of Hank McCoy. And I love the idea that it's just all Hank riffing on or paraphrasing other famous quotations and no one in the future realizes. I mean, based on the way his personality was back when he was on The Avengers, I could totally see Beast doing that just as sort of a practical joke on the world. As this is all going on, the gold team of the X-Men fly overhead in their Blackbird. From the news footage that they're seeing on the plane and also, you know, logic, they realize that the carnage below is probably based around Bishop, that guy they saw earlier with, you know, other carnage. And as far as I can tell, Claremont's narrator has just taken over the newscast. At a time of night when the dance floor is usually filled with gyrating singles looking for love, a different type of dance is taking place. One of death and destruction. I love everything about that newscast. Mainly I just love the idea of newscasters in the Marvel Universe figuring, all right, shit's gonna be crazy like all the time and probably kind of horrifying. Let's just have fun with it because what else are you gonna do? So I've been watching the series of Unfortunate Events Netflix series kind of obsessively for the last few weeks. I am fully caught up now. It came out two days ago. That should tell you about um, where that puts that. And so I'm imagining any kind of dramatic narration as read by the narrator of that series, which is Patrick Warburton playing John Hamm playing Lemony Snicket. I love everything about what you just said, but I'm still working on The Prisoner, so it'll be a while before I get to anything new. Aw, but you, you are watching it? Oh yeah, I'm almost halfway through. It's great. Oh, I'm so proud of you. It's also, like, way, way trippier than I expected. I fucking told you, man. I'm, I'm not sure what you were expecting, but I was fairly clear about this being mind-blowing. It is. It's pretty great. Also, as we record this, Legion Season 2 starts tomorrow. Very excited about that. I will be following that. But we digress. So the fight in the dance club is heating up, as opposed to the gyrating singles who would normally be there heating up. And Bishop orders Malcolm and Randall, the other two XSC agents that came back from the future with him, to retreat. And they don't, as Malcolm says. 
Sorry, sir. You're too... He was going to say important. Randall? He didn't even get the chance to scream. And Malcolm and Randall, two of the coolest mulleted character designs of a few months before, are gone. And unlike most Marvel characters, I'm pretty sure they don't come back outside of flashbacks. I mean, they are kind of just generic future dudes with mullets. I, I don't feel like we've, we've lost any, any unique snowflakes here. But Jay, Malcolm was a future dude with lots of technology all over his face. And Randall was a future dude with a mustache. They had more than mullets. I mean, they just had those one things aside from their mullets. But those are two things. Two things that are now lost. Lost to memory. Like tears in the futuristic acid rain. You know, later on, Mystique is going to show up pretending to be, I think, Randall. And I'm pretty sure she says more than Randall ever actually said in an X-Men comic. I mean, that's true. But she's not the real Randall. The real Randall is dead. And I mourn him every moment of my life as I have since 1992. Okay. Anyway, so Bishop is super pissed because his bros just got hosed. And he is about to finish off the leader of these mulleted villains, a guy named Stiglut, which I can't tell if I love that name or if I hate it, but it's one of those. It's nothing in between. Unfortunately, the X-Men are here. And the X-Men, as they now include former X-Factor members, enter the proper way, which is breaking through the architecture, in this case, case the roof. And they are here to stop Bishop from doing whatever he's trying to do, because all they see is, is these guys, these feature guys, like, running around doing murders. And, of course, in the conflict, Stiglut escapes. God damn it, X-Men. So heroes fight heroes a lot in comics, right? Like, a whole lot. But this time, it's kind of a big deal. It's been mentioned before that Colossus doesn't always know his own strength, and that's what happens here, because with a womp, he punches Bishop across the room. That happens all the time in comics. What doesn't happen all the time in comics is Bishop landing in wreckage and having a goddamn broken pipe sticking through his torso. Serious question. Is the sound effect womp ever not funny? That's the thing, because the caption says something about how the power of, of Colossus is awesome to behold, but then there's a big cartoon red womp at the top of the panel. It's great. It is pretty great. But this whole thing with Bishop being impaled, like, it's a water pipe and it's still got stuff dripping out of it in addition to the blood all around. It's really, really graphic for a superhero comic. And when I read this as a kid, I had never seen anything like it. And this stuck with me. Like, it was straight up disturbing for very young Miles. You may be having a rough day, Bishop. But you know what that means? It's time for a flashback. Indeed, because as Bishop escapes, as blood exits his body, a flashback enters his mind. Or flash forward, kinda. His past, which is the future of the straight timeline. For Bishop and within Bishop's mind, it's a flashback. In terms of objective timeline, it's a flash forward. We could have covered any comic in the world, but we covered X-Men. Eh, it would be boring otherwise. Miles, we could have been talking about Lady Cop right now. We could have, it's true. It's only got one issue. That would have made it really easy. Anyway, so in this flashback, the XSE runs through these old techie tunnels after Fitzroy. This is before they followed him into the present day. What are techie tunnels? Are those like Jeffrey's tubes? No, they're just, you know, tunnels that are technological-ish. There's tech everywhere because it's Portacio, well, in this case, Romita drawing, but Romita drawing in the Portacio era. I kind of figured it was futuristic sewers. 
Well, regardless, if it's futuristic sewers, then those sewers are very cybernetic looking, which, it being the future, eh, I buy it. But, in these futuristic whatever they are, Bishop doesn't give a flying snicked about the politics of protecting Trevor Fitzroy, and he'll be bamfed if he lets this kid jeopardize 30 years of post-emancipation mutant self-policing peace. I want to talk about this. There's so much to say. Do you think they say those sounds or that they make the noises that those spelled out sound effects are meant to imply? That's a good question because it's not like Wolverine. Well, okay, according to an issue of Squirrel Girl, Wolverine does in fact say the word snicked when his claws come out. But aside from that, I would assume it's more of like a snicked sounding sound effect. It's onomatopoeia. It's not the actual word snicked being spoken every time. Brief tangent, because this reminds me because it's really relevant, which is that that Laura Dern apparently just could not resist making blaster noises in all of her fight scenes in The Last Jedi. You can actually see her ma- mouthing pew-pew in the movie. I, f- I feel great about that. I knew I loved her. She was also amazing in Twin Peaks Season 3. She's amazing in so many things. It's so good. But anyway, so with this scene, I mean, yes, we have the silly, like, snicked and bamf sound effects that have been worked into dialogue, which I do like. It, you know, it really does get the idea across that the original X-Men are legends. But at the same time, okay, 30 years of post-emancipation mutant self-policing peace— This scene is a really good example of show, don't tell. In like a page and a half, we learn a ton about this future, about, you know, what's going on, but just the skeleton of it, because these characters wouldn't do the, as you know, Bob, that we so often see in fiction. They're just talking about it like the way they would talk about it living in the future. And so one of the things I've always loved about X-Men is that especially if you just jump in randomly the way I did when you start, you get the sense of this massive world and you're only catching little trickles of it, little like shreds of what's going on and everything is referencing everything else. And this is doing that for a future timeline that as of yet, we have seen almost none of. It makes Bishop's future, it makes Earth 1191 seem incredibly real. Like we totally believe it and thus we totally believe everything that Bishop has lost by getting stuck in the past. And I'm just gonna keep gushing about everything involving Bishop in this arc because I'm so excited to get to the part of the 90s I like and this is it. All right, gushing all over Bishop aside, the... (laughs) Continue. The XSE catches up with Fitzroy. They manage to capture him. His hair is really great in this issue, by the way. I, I just want to throw that in for, for reference. And they stumble across an old TV monitor with a recording still playing. And on that recording is Jean Grey. Parts of it are, are clearly destroyed. Parts of it are, are warped beyond understanding. But they still manage to get at least part of the recording. Now, this recording will be played out in full in the not terribly distant future, specifically 
in Onslaught X-Men number one. That's right, Jean is trying to warn everyone about Onslaught. The character, not the story arc, although that would also be a reasonable thing to warn the world about. So as I was taking notes for this, I debated whether we should talk about who the ex-traitor actually is. Because Bishop at this point doesn't know who the traitor is, he's going to have some ideas, they're going to turn out to be wrong because it is in fact Onslaught, the sort of fusion of Magneto's negative mental energy from when Xavier erased Magneto's mind, it's a whole thing. It was definitely a whole thing. Because as a kid reading this, it was like this was the hottest thing to talk about on the playground. Who was the X-Trader? What was going on here? It was this great big mystery, and it was awesome. But I realized, Jay, as you've often pointed out, we don't summarize the X-Men, we explain the X-Men. So yes, the X-Trader being talked about is sort of Professor Xavier, which is to say it's Onslaught. Bishop's not going to learn that for a long time. It's basically Professor X. It's Professor X, and like parts of Magneto, he's internalized by virtue of being Professor X and the sanctimonious fucker he is. Onslaught is Professor X, as far as I'm concerned. Now, Jim Lee and Wills Portacio had some ideas of who the traitor was going to be, but they didn't finalize it. They were going to base it off of whatever the fans didn't guess, whichever option was the least guessed by the fans, which is kind of fun, actually. So what you're saying is that the X-Traitor was definitely going to turn out to be Jackdaw. Freaking Jackdaw. Disengage that elf. I never trusted him. So, Bishop, I mean, this is a big deal here, right? So, Bishop, Malcolm, and Randall, they've been chasing Fitzroy. They do end up catching him around here. But they have seen a message from the lost X-Men, where it's always been a mystery of how the X-Men were killed. They have found the first evidence. And so, Bishop needs to find out more. He heads from the X-Men's lost war room to the pool, which is, and we quote... A maximum security prison located in the floating graveyard known as Manhattan. I should point out, we don't find out at this point why Manhattan is a floating graveyard. Again, we're getting some, at least the comic book equivalent, of Show Don't Tell, and I really enjoy that. Well, the comic book equivalent of Show Don't Tell would be literally showing us these things, not telling us in captions, but it's coming closer. This is the standard narrative equivalent of Show Don't Tell. I think we can cut this book some slack, though. This is a franchise defined by Chris Claremont, and Chris Claremont never saw a panel of art that he didn't want to also poetically summarize. Now, from the pool, Bishop heads off to meet with a fellow named The Witness. This is, this is a gentleman who, who uh, exalts in his, his legendary status by hanging out naked on a throne most of the time. Yeah, he's, I think he's actually in the pool. So he is imprisoned, but sort of respectfully, he's on this throne. He's in this force field. He has a guard uh, with named Shackle with this really weird eggshell white costume. And there are these two sexy twin ladies at his feet. It is very dramatic, but I'm confused here. You know, that's really the appropriate response to the witness. Who is this guy? Oh boy, okay. So what he does here is to speak in mysterious sentence fragments to Bishop and predict what Bishop is going to say, but he doesn't really offer any real information. Bishop is convinced the witness was there. He was there when the X-Men died. He's got to tell Bishop what happened. But the witness doesn't confirm. One thing we as the readers learn is that the witness's name, as his guard mentions, is LeBeau. Like Remy LeBeau. And he looks like Gambit. He looks like he could be a future version of Gambit. But he's not. Or is he? It's kind of ambiguous. So, in Bishop and Gambit's 2001 miniseries, Sons of the Atom, uh, we find out that the Witness has been Gambit's mentor since Gambit was a kid. So they were at least hanging out together, but this is the Marvel Universe. That doesn't necessarily confirm or deny anything. 
Yeah, that doesn't mean that he's not Gambit at all. That just means that if he is Gambit, he's Gambit at a different age than the Gambit he mentored. He didn't just mentor Gambit, though. He also mentored a very young Lucas Bishop. So he's been sort of a parenty, thiefy figure for both of these characters. Now, eventually we find out that he's a witness, not in that he witnessed the death of the X-Men, but in that he sees the entire timeline, including every alternate future, as if it's in the present, which is a power that I can see why that would make him a little weird and make him talk funny. So despite references in 1999's Gambit Number 10 and the Bishop the Last X-Man series, it looks like he's probably not actually Gambit, although that doesn't explain why they both have the name of LeBeau, unless I missed something, which I may very well have. I mean, there are other people with the last name LeBeau, but... I hate Gambit's alternate universe versions. Like, there are some pretty cool ones, and most of them are basically just Gambit. Occasionally, Gambit, but on the bad guy's side. Usually, Gambit on the good guy's side with some slight differences. But when they take a left, boy, do they take a left. So as far as this guy, I mean, back in 1992, uh, the playground consensus was that probably the witness was, in fact, Gambit, although we still didn't know who the ex-trader was. Bishop will later think that it is Gambit. We'll get to that, I believe, next episode. So big mystery number one, the ex-trader. Big mystery number two, the witness. Both remain mysteries for a long time, especially since the creative teams shift all the hell around in this era. But there's no time for mysteries. Bishop heads back to the normal people, by which I mean the normal normal super people who aren't the witness part of the pool, um, just in time to discover that Fitzroy has absorbed a rat's life force and used it to escape, and now he's just killing everyone. And flee, flees into a time portal, along with like 400 prisoners, each of their mullets more menacing than the last. 93. 93 prisoners escape. 93 prisoners. It looks like it looks like way more in that panel. It's specifically 93. Bishop mentions that that later on that um that what's his name is the last of the 93 and they it's a number that they repeat a few times. Is this like that thing with teeth and X-Force where you see a lot more on the page than probably actually exist? Yes, it's exactly like that. Um and Bishop realizes there's only one thing to do. He just has to has to see if Malcolm and Randall are in. I can't order you to come with me, but I can ask for volunteers. Gentlemen? The three of us against an army of homicidal mutant outlaws? That could take all afternoon. And the rest is history. I mean, like, literally. Now, flashback completed, Bishop wakes up in the comics present, his past, in the X-Men's med bay, where he is recovering from his, uh, from being impaled on a pipe. And Professor Xavier arrives to speak to Bishop alone. And Bishop, talking to Xavier, believes finally that, yeah, these are the real X-Men. This is the real past. His friends are really dead, and he really is stuck here. Which means that he's ready for the next step. And Bishop and Xavier emerge to meet the gold team, to whom Xavier introduces Bishop as the newest member of the X-Men. And the gold team, of course, is shocked because this guy was the too cool for school, too badass for a superhero team guy that they were fighting against not too long ago. It's actually very reminiscent of Rogue's introduction as a member of the X-Men in Uncanny X-Men number 171, which I kind of dig. I kind of dig that that's a thing with the X-Men. Bishop is much more heavily armed. Significantly more heavily armed. Also, just his arms themselves are, like, fucking huge. And that brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 288, Time and Place. So I mentioned the creative teams kind of skipping around. This one is plotted by Leon Partacio, dialogued by Bernan Lobdell, 
uh, penciled by Andy Kubert and inked by Bill Sienkiewicz. And Kubert and Sienkiewicz are a really neat combination and one that leaves me wishing that Sienkiewicz had, had inked for more artists specifically after seeing what he does with Kubert's pencils. I would have loved, loved to see his inks over Chris Pachalo. This was kind of a weird one for me because I'm mostly familiar with Kubert from when he does X-Men art later in the 90s, which is notable for being very, I don't know, soft, straight lines, thick inks, almost cartoonish in a way. And so seeing Sienkiewicz ink him is a very different style. It's a little bit jarring, but it does look pretty cool. And Sienkiewicz is being relatively restrained here. He's not He's not going hyper Sienkiewicz over, over Kubert's pencils. And the result is something... That's that's got kind of a, a, a really good murky noir feel. I I wouldn't be out of place for you know Sandman Mystery Theater. Ooh yeah. So what happens? Well, we begin appropriately for something that's you know murky and mysterious with a team lying in wait for an ambush. Specifically, it's Gold Team who's lying in wait to ambush Blue Team when Blue Team gets back from whatever they've been up to. And this this double page splash is is the one place where I got to say the art really doesn't actually work. Um, it's not quite stylized enough to justify just how anatomically improbable Cyclops is in, in, in that bit. Um, but it's, it's offset by the fact that that page also includes one of my favorite bits of dialogue between Iceman and Cyclops. Feels like old times, eh, Scott? Seems like it's been a long time since we had a little fun. Fun. Now, the lesson here is that you should never pull impromptu fun training exercises with Cyclops because he is really bad at not taking things seriously. And so, of course, what he immediately goes into is... All right, in the spirit of uh, fun, Peter, you were foolish enough to attack in human form. Suppose Hank had reacted instinctively and used his superior strength before he realized who you were. Or possibly even worse, suppose I'd cut loose with my eye beams and... But the gold team just wants him to unwind, ideally by creating a hostile work environment, apparently. Yeah, specifically they want him to dish on whether Psylocke is as gorgeous in person as she is in training videos. And I love this because... One of, one of my favorite things about Cyclops is he is simultaneously the best and worst of the X-Men at workplace boundaries. At this point, he just sort of stammers out an excuse and splits, which Bobby and Warren interpret as meaning that they're onto something, which is creepy and weird. And what sucks is they are onto something. There's going to be romantic tension between Psylocke and Cyclops, and it's uncomfortable and I don't really like it, and it really comes out of nowhere. Like, there's been nothing between them until this point, um, but that's mostly going to happen in Adjectiveless X-Men since both Psylocke and Cyclops are on the blue team. This is just where it first shows up. Anyway. Meanwhile, in Uncanny X-Men, in the Danger Room, Professor X is running Bishop through a simulation, and... Bishop is having a rough time adjusting. He is out of his time. He's lost his two closest compatriots. And suddenly he's basically on a team with his heroes. He has been sent not only to the big leagues, but like the legendary past big leagues. And I do love this narration as he sees all the X-Men coming up to say, hey, post-training session. A strange silence falls upon Bishop. A chilling awareness of the incongruity of his situation as he looks upon the living faces of these people to whose memory his own life has been dedicated. And in fact, he's going to get to know them pretty well because the professor places Bishop under the tutelage of Storm. And lesson one is going to New York for some low-key hangouts, or nominally low-key hangouts, because it's the X-Men and that never quite works out. Alas, their adventure is interrupted 
um, by the arrival of none other than Skyglot. That's the last of the 93 villains that Bishop and company had chased to the uh, present past. And this dude is bad news. Yeah, he has apparently killed over 300 people in the future. And the last time Bishop saw Skyglot, Skyglot was standing knee-deep in blood. Fun fact, assuming a square room or pool, average volume adults, fully exsanguinated, and not accounting for displacement, the room Stiglot was standing in when arrested was at maximum 8 feet 9 inches on any given wall. Now, maximum volume to surface area efficiency would have increased in a sphere, but that seems improbable enough that I'm not going to bother to math it, and a, a cylinder would just have been gratuitous. We have now successfully calculated that and the BMI of a celestial. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. Anyway, Cyglot sucks up the life energy of the two ladies he's strutting around town with, because I guess that's what all the bad guys do these days, and everyone fights. Bishop is about to kill Cyglot, which I gotta say, I mean, okay, that seems reasonable, but Storm intervenes. You are going to have to learn. Immediately. We are subject to different laws than the ones under which you have operated until now. The X-Men do not kill. Look around you, Bishop. Look and learn. Whatever may have been your role in your own dark future, here and now the X-Men are protectors of humanity. When we fight, we fight to preserve, not destroy. And always, always, it is the safety of those around us which is of primary concern. An X-Man would willingly give his own life Bishop, to save the life of an innocent. Bishop, understandably, is taken aback by Storm's legitimately awesome speech and takes some time to think things through and goes to let off some steam in the danger room. After he's done there, he heads to Storm's bedroom to give her his XSC command insignia. <laughs> what? What did you think I was going to say? So this is effective because... Having one of Bishop's first lessons in the present be that he has to see the world as more nuanced than he's used to, he has to take civilians into account, he has to kill only as a last resort, this works, and I think part of why it works is a nice little subtle touch, which is that in this scene, Colossus is the one holding Bishop back as Storm talks to Bishop. Colossus, who was forced as a last resort to kill both Proteus and the Marauder Riptide, Colossus arguably the most innocent of the X-Men initially, He's seen the effect this can have on people. He values life so much, even when it comes to enemies of the X-Men. This is a nice way of handling things. And what's also nice is that Bishop is actually humble about it. He fucking listens. Later writers always forget this. Bishop is not just stubborn and headstrong. He can be those things, but ultimately he's willing to learn, especially from people he respects. So the 90s have many crimes, but Lucas Bishop, especially as portrayed here, is not one of them. Now, you read that as the primary takeaway of this scene. I read that as the secondary takeaway of a scene where the primary lesson is one that I think many X-Men have had to learn at some point, which is Storm is better than you and always will be. I mean, that's, yeah, that's legit. Meanwhile, in New Jersey... Opal Tanaka is at home reading a letter, which according to the narrator, whose message must for now be hidden from us. And Bobby shows up with, with a bouquet of roses and, and drags her out with him. And then we get to something that I, so I have a lot of trouble with this because we then see a bit of a letter, which may or may not be the one she was reading because it looks like it's written in a 
different language than that one. But this might also be a letter that she was writing because there's a pen next to it, but we were only told of the presence of one letter and she appeared to be reading rather than writing a letter when Bobby came in. Anyway, the letter we can actually read reads, I'm glad to hear that you will be coming after all. I wish you would reconsider making peace with Bobby. Anyways, when you get here, I'll take you... But we'll get back to those kids later. Because back at the mansion, Warren listens to a voicemail from his on-and-off uh, flame Charlotte and has a moment of identity crisis. So to convince himself that he's normal, um, he goes flying naked. Okay, Warren Worthington really has come a long way. Back in X-Factor number one, he only took off his shirt to fly through the subway. Now he's flying through the sky, butt-ass blue naked. That's our Warren Kenneth Worthington III. Warren Kenneth Worthington, you put all your clothes on right now. Also, like, it's kind of weird when he's being Moby before he flies off, his wings are just gone. That seems to be something that just became a thing in this era. Warren can entirely retract his metal wings, apparently. Usually in X-Factor, he at least had those little boomerang things on his shoulders that they would come out of. But eh, whatever. Errors change, artistic standards change. Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men 289, Knots. And once again, different creative team. Uh, we have Scott Lovedell doing all of the writing now and Will Sportasio on pencils. And I give Sportasio a lot of shit, but um, he's actually, he's getting much better very fast. I know, it's kind of a shame he's going to be gone from X-Men really, really soon based on where we're covering. Um, I mean, it's it's exaggerated. Like, Storm's epaulets are fucking gargantuan and Bishop's arms are probably as big as my torso, but eh, superhero comic. Dude, those aren't epaulets. That is, so I, I, was, I was looking at this because I thought at first that that was just, that she had just incredibly, incredibly gathered sleeves. Those aren't her sleeves, that's her cloak. Her cloak is that voluminous, that it's that gathered at her shoulders. Oh, that's really cool. I love that. I love the Storm costume. It's so different than all the ones she wore before. Like, it covers her entire body. It's white instead of black. It looks awesome. I have no idea how the fuck she walks anywhere with that cape, but I don't care because she's Storm, and she can pull it off if she wants. I shall enter the door! She just has to narrate. It's fine. Well, it's more like, I shall walk up the stairs and not trip and break my neck or, or have a, a nomad faux pas moment. <laughs> oh, nomad. You know, you know about that, right? How his costume happened? Oh, yeah. It was when Captain America quit being Captain America because of, well, basically Nixon. And uh, he had a cape on his costume and then he didn't. Right. But specifically how the costume happened is that he called uh, Sharon, who was his girlfriend at the time, and was like, I'm going to your mother's house. Come with me. Help me make a new costume. And she was like, um, no, I have other things to do. And he's like, fine. Well, I'm just going to go to your mom's house and make a costume. And he does, and like the entire, and, and he is groaning about how no one let him have a cape, and he's going to have a cape now. And the first fight he gets into, he trips over it. <laughs> oh, Steve, that makes me happy. So, Storm, her incredible cloak, is showing Bishop the school's photo gallery. And I really appreciate that in addition to all the team pictures, we see large pictures of Professor Xavier, of course, but also Magneto, because Magneto was a headmaster for like a really long time. And Storm notices that, that Bishop is, is kind of treating this place as a museum and, and warns him, you will no doubt feel more at home by taking that tone of reverence from your voice. Is it that obvious? Very. And when we are not in combat, you are encouraged to call me Aurora. And you, you may call me Bishop? Have it your way, Commander. I think Bishop just forgot he had a first name because he was so starstruck. Or maybe he just hadn't had that name written in yet. I think he just goes by Bishop all the time. I mean, does Shard call him Bishop? I bet Shard calls him Bishop. Even though her last name is also Bishop? Yeah. Well, we'll get to that way later. It's like Mulder. Like, Mulder's parents probably called him Mulder. <laughs> I think so. Or probably they called him 
Mulder. <laughs> yeah. So, outside, Professor Xavier and Jean are having a heart-to-heart. This is a nice Claremont-esque quiet issue, and this is a nice part of it. Xavier feels guilty about taking away Jean's childhood, which, I mean, okay, fair enough. But Jean points out that, for her, it's been worth it. What child is given the opportunity to fly to the stars? How many children battle alongside as guardian thunder gods or super soldiers? You gave me, all of us, more than you took away. Okay, that's arguable. But you've already heard my rants on this subject, and and I'm going to say I really like Jean and Professor Xavier's friendship when it's written well. There are dynamics and a degree of of iffiness that echoes through if you're familiar with the Silver Age and then when it's going to be revisited again in the Onslaught arc. But the two of them and and their, their closeness and the ways they interact with each other as opposed to everyone else is a really interesting and really neat window into the two of them as characters. Because I think Jean has a lot of the same issues that Professor Xavier does with the ethics of telepathy. She is someone for whom ultimately ethics comes down to having to choose when to trust her own judgment and whose greatest, you know, enemy is is effectively her own hubris. And she's also Charles Xavier's best student, which means that a lot of the times she makes what are probably the wrong choices. And in a lot of ways, with two telepaths that powerful, I imagine it's kind of hard to trust your relationships with a lot of people. And the two of them, I think there's a degree of frankness in how they interact with each other that neither of them entirely ever has with anyone else. Yeah, very good point and and very well said. I totally agree. That's one of the nice things about having the X-Men, for the most part, all under one roof again. I mean, I kind of miss the X-Factor days, but seeing the 05 with Xavier and with the all-new, all-different team, for the most part, you know, the ones that aren't on Excalibur or whatever— it's it's nice because there is that much history and you can go back to that very solid foundation laid over just dozens and dozens of years and still make it feel fresh but genuine. And something else, you know, seeing her back here, seeing in her element kind of brings me to to something that I think a lot of people miss because they tend to look at, at Jean and Scott as kind of a unit and see Scott as sort of the duty-bound one who can't quite leave the X-Men. But like 90% of the time when they go, the reason they go back or the reason they stay is actually on Jean's initiative. Like, she is the one who always does the, this is nice, but what I want to be doing is superheroing with the X-Men. Let's go do that. Yeah, I mean, the X-Men are her family, and I think a lot of that family element is based specifically around Jean. She's the heart of the X-Men. I mean, Tom Taylor was talking about that in X-Men Red, and he's totally right. She is, but she's also very much someone who likes doing the superhero thing, who sees that as the way to solve problems, who sees that as the thing that galvanizes her and excites her more than anything else she could be doing at any given time with her her skills and her abilities, superhero or otherwise. Meanwhile, Angel, who has just helped Iceman tie his tie for his date with Opal, we'll get to the thing with Iceman later. I want to say quickly, um, it's actually a running gag in X-Men that none of the X-Men can tie a bow tie. So this scene starts with Iceman trying to tie one on fail, and he goes into Warren's room for help, and he comes out with a knotted necktie. And I don't think, I mean, I think this was before it was really established as a thing. The, the, the point where the, the joke kind of reaches its climax and punchline is, is it in the, the issue with Scott and Jean's wedding. But um, I, I really love that. 
It's pretty great. But what's less great, at least for Warren, is the fact that suddenly his reflection starts talking to him. And his reflection isn't him as blue archangel. It's the old late silver age, red, yellow, and blue costumes, not blue skinned version. And this version starts taunting him about how he should just get over his archangel transformation and all the angsty angst that has come with it. And so unsurprisingly, Archangel reaches through the mirror and starts beating the crap out of his own reflection. I expected this to just be Archangel hallucinating because he does that sometimes. But no, in this case, there's actually a slightly more logical explanation. I'm not sure if this is actually a more logical explanation. It is with an X-Men world, which is that it's, it's Mystique who's just messing with him, but also, you know, trying to help in her own weird Mystique way. Not helping, lady. And she's actually at the X-Mansion for a reason. There was this whole thing in Wolverine, like around 51 through 53. They were fighting Mojo. Spiral was involved. Now, Professor Xavier is furious at all of the carnage in his halls and calls Warren into his office. Warren flies the fuck away, saying, screw you, Chuck. Well, not literally saying it, but, you know, thinking it, I'm assuming. At least he's wearing pants this time. I think that might be a, a, a downgrade. I don't know. I mean, I feel like the more naked Warren is, the more psychologically free he... Nah, the dude's fucked up. Who am I kidding? Anyway, Bishop and Storm are there, and they're furious at Mystique. Forge, however, he's already pissed at Storm for, like, fawning over the new guy as he sees it. Come on, Forge. Forge defends Mystique. And Bishop immediately gives Forge a tongue lashing because as far as he sees it, and he's right, Forge is jumping the chain of command. Storm is in charge. It is not Forge's right to question her decision. Forge says, fuck this. He's here as a favor to Professor Xavier. He has an identity outside the X-Men. It's not his entire world the way it is for some of these other people. And he storms off. Which begins Forge's main character arc in this story, which is acting like a petulant man-baby. Pretty much, because Storm goes after him to talk, and I do like that they finally talk, because I agree, it's overdue. I mean, you know, after the whole year on the adversary's world and all the nonsense that happened since then, like, come on, guys, take five minutes. Forge says they haven't really spent that much time together in a long time, and he wonders, does the year they spent together in the adversary's dimension and fall of the mutants, that was around X-Men number 226, does that mean nothing? Okay, first of all, Forge, that was like... 65 issues ago. Fair point. Forge tries to explain. Don't you understand? It doesn't have to be that way. Let the rest of the world see you as the unreachable, untouchable goddess. I know better. I've seen the woman inside the warrior. So you say. The truth is, I do not know what is inside me anymore. And Forge, to his credit, does not take the bait. Um... And, and deliver the one-liner that I feel like is obvious there. Instead, he offers to take Storm away to bring her into a life for herself with him. And then he asks her to marry him. I mean, okay, I have really mixed feelings about this because I think Forge does have a point that Storm is burying herself in the X-Men, but that's not Aurora's fault, that's the writer's fault because the writers forgot what to do with her for a long time, basically since around the Extinction Agenda, if not before. I think that Forge considers the true Aurora and the one that she should be reflecting and going back to, one who is either depowered or isolated. And that's a really fucking big problem. It really is. And we see so much more of that, like as these scenes progress. And this sucks because Forge is always a character I stand up for. I feel like he gets a raw deal. He should be a big, uh, big deal member of the X-Men. He practically led the team in the non-team era. But then this shit happens. Forge 
is really bad at relating to people. We've seen that before. We've seen it explored canonically. And in terms of his romantic relationships, what we see and what we're going to continue to see here is, you know, what I just mentioned about Storm. And that's not something that gets explored. That's not something that gets brought up in canon, which really bugs me. That that Forge and Storm's big romantic moment, life-death, had genuine connection, but it was also him hardcore gaslighting her. Kind of was. Kind of was. And and that the other t- time that he, he describes as being the real them is the two of them cut off from the rest of their lives and their support systems. And Storm again, isolated from the other parts of her life that define her. And we're going to see the way he handles stuff in, in this arc. Like, I think, I think honestly that it's character consistent. It's just consistent with one of the less pleasant aspects of his character. That is, I suppose, a fair point. And I think that's the thing. So much of the Forge that I like was outside of that era. Honestly, so much of the Forge that I like was when Storm wasn't around. He seems to mostly be a dick around her in terms of what we see on page. But enough of this terrible interpersonal drama for a while. Let's turn to some other terrible interpersonal drama. Oh, man. Speaking of dicks. Um, Iceman. <laughs> Speaking of dicks, the Jay and Miles explain the X-Men story. <laughs> That's the episode title right there. Possibly. Probably <laughs> not. I feel like we're coming too too close on the shoulders of Gambit's balls. But, um... Anyway, so Iceman, after finding out that Forge couldn't tie a tie, but Warren totally can, just not a bow tie, he brings Opal Tanaka, his girlfriend, to meet his parents, including his shitty, shitty dad. And dude, this guy's fucking lines as he prepares to go meet Bobby. Yeah, dude, Bobby's dad is just straight up super fucking racist. I just don't understand why a good-looking boy like Bobby feels the need to complicate his life by dating an Oriental. Like he doesn't have enough problems just being a mutant. Bobby's father is terrible. I kind of understand why Bobby stayed closeted for so long. Actually, William kind of hit the nail on the head with he doesn't have enough problems just being a mutant. But anyway, was was William Drake this terrible in the Iceman Oblivion-y miniseries? I don't remember him being this bad. He was pretty bad. This particular scenario didn't come up, but it, I, I, it's reasonable that that's, that's the same William Drake. God, he's so awful. He's so fucking awful. Like, you talk about understanding why Iceman stayed closeted for so long— also plausibly so that he could have as few conversations with his parents as possible, because that would just have necessitated, you know, talking to them. Right. Uh, thankfully, the Drakes do chill out, including William Drake, a little bit in, well, okay, 2018. It actually just, just happened, and it took a long time to get there. But still, there is hope way in the future. But it's not just the Drakes that are getting ready to meet Bobby and Opal, because Hero, the cybernetic samurai, which is to say Cyberai, remember him from X-Factor, I think, 63 and 64, he's snooping. So, they all go out to dinner. Wait, with Hero? He snoops along. They don't know he's there. But Bobby and Opal and the Drakes are, and William is still super shitty and cold, and then hostile, saying that what Bobby and Opal are doing is vulgar. Thankfully, they are saved by the Cyberai Bell. Hero shows up. He is there to warn them that other Cyberai are on their way to kill the Drakes. Like, Right this second, he gives them about four seconds of warning, which leads us to Uncanny X-Men number 290, Frayed. This just continues uninterrupted, and specifically, Mr. Drake takes Hero's interruption as confirmation, confirmation that this is what happens because interracial dating. Um, exactly the type of wacky ninjaness I'd expect from you and yours. That is a weirdly specific kind of racism. Who, who even says that? Like, what the fuck? Wacky ninjaness, huh? Anyway, 
Um, and, and, you know, Mr. Drake is, is, will note, plenty proud of Bobby being Iceman when he can use that pride as a vehicle for racism, because this dude is a huge asshole, and I bet holidays at the Drake house are just the fucking worst. Seriously. Anyway, the Cybri are here on uh, Tetsuo's orders. They are here to kill Bobby's whole family because of vengeance. And again, we've covered the Cybri and, and the origins of this particular revenge plot on the podcast previously. I'll link to that episode as well in the visual companion if you'll want a Cybri refresher course. The Cybri have some programming that, that limits their behavior. What we learn specifically is they lack volume control because the only variable they were programmed with was how slowly they allow people to die. I just thought that was like a bad guy joke they were making, but I kind of like the idea of that being literally true. That makes me like the Cybri more. What, be because you like characters who yell all the time? I do indeed! Thank you, the tick. So at Hero's urging, Iceman gets Opal and his parents to safety, and Hero defeats the Cybri by self-destructing. He just showed up to Snoop, deliver a speech, and then explode. Aww. Um. Bobby and Opal head off, and Opal makes a passive-aggressive comment about Bobby not understanding honor under her breath. And that's the last we'll see of them for a little while, because we are on to the Rasputin brothers, Pyotr and Mikhail. They are headed to Russia to visit the rest of their family, and uh, Mikhail is feeling a little anxious. So as Pyotr heads into the travel agency in his uh, Filipino flag jacket, which that was Will Spartasio being Will Spartasio, which is kind of cool. Mikhail stays outside to have a flashback about the time he killed a bunch of people in another dimension, and then he turns a passing roller skater into a tree. There's like a tree in the foreground with a screaming face as Piotr talks to Mikhail. What happened? X-Men. I mean, Mikhail was so nice. He was a vintner. He was so proud of his wines. X-Men. Yeah, well... Back at the mansion, Storm is in a great mood, unlike the delivery tree guy, because Forge proposed to her. She's actually super excited. She's wondering, should she actually leave the X-Men to marry him? Should she just be happy as an individual and follow her heart? Those are two very different questions, and the answer to them respectively are no and yes. Well, Storm conflates them, and she's really excited about this prospect. Now, back in Forge's workshop, Jean Grey stops by to sow some seeds of doubt. I mean, she's specifically there to defend Aurora's honor from this utter asshole. Um, but, you know, nominally she's there for a friendly chat. I do like that Forge is talking to Jean about his doubts. I mean, they did have a friendship, an admittedly flirtatious one, back in that time that Jean Grey's arms got turned into tentacles. Never forget. Never, ever forget. That's true. We are we are here to remember the arm tentacles. Um, but they are gone, and so is Jean and Forge's friendship. Um, as, as Forge demands that Jean tell him if Aurora truly loves him. Here I am, the mutant who can repair anything. Anything. Except the woman I love. Pardon the blow to your male ego, but there's nothing wrong with Aurora. Hell yeah, Jean. Tell that asshole. Yeah, Jean is Jean is a really good friend. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people specifically ship it, and and to that I say there is certainly textual evidence if that's the way you lean. But either way, she's a great friend, and uh, Forge again demands to know demands that Jean tell him if if Aurora if Aurora truly loves him. Jean says it's not for her to say. To which Forge, because he's a jerk, responds. You just did. Man, fuck you, Forge. Oh, Forge, stop being terrible. But he won't, at least not for a little while. Meanwhile, outside, Bishop, having already begun to absorb Storm's tutelage, is hanging out naked in the rain. And Mystique shows up to say hi. 
Dude, I really love Mystique in this scene. She gives no fucks and pulls no punches. Um, and uh, especially after Bishop says the line that made me angry enough that I actually stopped and yelled at a comic book. According to your file, you've not been the same since the death of a woman under your command. Oh, you motherfucker. Fuck you, fuck the file, and fuck your future history books. Rip his heart out, Mystique. Oh, and she kind of does, but before that... Okay, so the comic does seem to go in the direction of, yes, Mystique is crazy now because Destiny died, but Destiny died ages ago. Destiny died during the non-team era of X-Men, and all of a sudden Mystique is acting bonkers. Like, weird comic? Well, that's covered a little bit more in the Wolverine arc that this is coming out of, um, which I suspect we'll end up talking about at more length at some point. Um, we're not quite there yet. We're, we're covering Wolverine a little bit differently from the other titles that we are in this, um, which is usually, which is on and off and usually in very large blocks when we do. Um, we're going to find out later, in fact, that, that Mystique is kind of faking it. And, but, but no, specifically what I latched onto here, what, what was really upsetting is looking at, at Bishop from his presumably more enlightened future writing Destiny off as a woman under your command. Bishop is every historian who looks at letters of dudes going like, I want to stick my tongue in your ear and also make love to you at all times, and goes, men were good platonic friends back in the day. But at the same time, I kind of get it, because Bishop we have seen, really, in this same arc, he sees everything in terms of chain of command. He sees everything in terms of mutant teams as being about rank and being about soldiers rather than actual interpersonal connection. So I can see him downplaying that. Honestly, I can also see future history straight-washing Mystique and Destiny's relationship. Fuck no. We need to prevent that specific future. I don't know who needs to be assassinated for this, but I'm sure it can be arranged. Now, there, there's another possibility, and that possibility is that Bishop is in hardcore denial in the way that kids get in denial about the fact that their parents have sex. Because there is heroes. That makes sense. It's like, no, the X-Men don't have sex. The X-Men are chaste and pure and re reproduce um, by parthenogenesis. <laughs> I mean, one of them did. One time. In a different timeline. Yeah, true. Well, Bishop's from a different timeline, but like a different, different timeline. Anyway, Mystique is pretty pissed about this, and she turns into Randall and sort of yells at Bishop and tries to make him feel guilty. And Bishop is basically just like, hey, he died in the line of duty. It sucks, but we're soldiers. Fuck you, lady. Cold, Bishop. Yeah, that's Bishop's style. So Mystique is clearly more and more unhinged, and Forge eventually comes and collects her inside and at this point, Forge makes a decision. Um, the next time Storm sees him, this is the first time she's seen it since he proposed to her, he tells Storm that he's decided to leave with Mystique. And part of his justification is that way back in the day, which is true, Destiny said something about Forge and Mystique being together in the end. I think that was back in Uncanny X-Men number 255. No, he's, he's grasping it for straws. Listen to this jerk. She at least needs me. What about me? I need you. You don't know how, more than anything. I wish that were true, Aurora. And then he mansplains to Storm who Storm is. That's so shitty. Like, he talks about her, how she's still a child in a lot of ways, how now she's trapped under her responsibilities the way she was trapped as a child under the rubble of her home when her parents died. Forge, what are you doing? Everything about what you're saying is wrong. I think, again, I think... 
Forge just can't handle Storm when she's in her element and when she's in command. I mean, again, think about the times he's been happy with her and the times that she's decided to stay with him. They've all been times when she was isolated, when she was depowered or both. Like when she had no other options. Forge, it's, it's not that I'm even mad. I'm just disappointed. As he and Mystique leave, Storm whispers to the reader that she was going to say yes. So, um, dodged a bullet there, I guess. I mean, she could have just interrupted Forge as he was leaving like a person would in real life. But at the same time, yeah, kind of fuck that guy. And so now he's gone. I mean, Banshee left recently. Now Forge is leaving. They were basically the two main characters during the non-team era. And now they're out of here. It's okay. We've got Bishop. We've got Bishop. Oh man, I'm going to be riding high on that fact for a long time. I'm also riding high on the awesomeness of our listeners who have questions. Trivial Lad asks on Tumblr, if Kitty Pride and Doug Ramsey had been characters in the 1995 classic Hackers, oh hell yeah, what would their cool hacker handles have been? I think the answer to this question is obviously Shadowcat and Cypher. I mean, I was going to try to come up with something that would fit, but... Yeah, you're right, their actual superhero code names are just basically names that would be rad as hell and hackers. Well done, Chris Claremont. Yeah, no, these are these are absolutely their hacker handles, unquestionably. Um, okay, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, do you guys know of any X-Men books like uh, Christina Strain's Generation X? That is an excellent question, and that was such a good series. I was so sad it was canceled, but it still exists, and we can reread it, and it's wonderful. So when I think of the traits to watch out for if you're looking for a book kind of like uh, Christina Strange Generation X, I think about focusing on character over plot, soap opera over superheroing, personality over punching, and also probably a largely young cast. Um, another important thing that this book has that is, is rare in X-Books, um, especially until recently, is, is textual queerness. True. And that one's harder to find, but we'll do our best. So the most obvious answer, I think, is the original run of Generation X from the 1990s. It's a great book. It has that same kind of superhero character interaction stuff that Christina Strain's run did so well. And there's also a lot of both plot and character overlap with the stuff from Strain's run. Now, there's also a book I never get tired of talking up, which is the new X-Men book from the 2000s. It was another young team, also focused on glorious teen angst. And that one got real fucking dark and character development. When you say new X-Men, you're, you're not talking about the Grant Morrison one, though, right? No, it's kind of confusing. This was the one that started out as New X-Men Academy X, or maybe it was just X-Men Academy X. But what I would even go to before that is the run that leads directly into it that nobody ever remembers. That was, I believe, New Mutants Volume 2. That focused on teachers and students, and I think it kind of captures the feel of Jubilee being a main character of Strange Generation X. As far as contemporary X-Books, I, I would absolutely, absolutely go to Runaways. It's not an X-Book, but it's got those dynamics. Um, and as a bonus, uh, Christina Strain colored the original Runaways series. And it's got a new volume out right now, uh, written by, I believe, Rainbow Rowell with art by Chris Anka, yeah. and it is fucking great. Runaways is one of my favorite, favorite comics, and certainly one of my favorite recent comics. Well, I guess it actually came out quite a long time ago, because time is weird and we're getting old and that's confusing. But, you know, even so. Two other series that I think again, depending on what you're looking for, might appeal to you, are Jason Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men and maybe um, Colin and Phyla's Spider-Man and the X-Men. Both of those focus on characters who also play pretty significant roles in, um, in Strange Generation X. So if that's what you're looking for, um, and they're, they're both based at the Xavier School, so those, those might also um, scratch some of that itch for you. 
Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgments from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. Chris Claremont's writing may be gone where we are right now, but his angry narration is not forgotten. Your Tam Bernas, you have given up so much. Your time, your job, your snazzy badge, all to pursue the fiendish Fiona Adams and the wading pool full of blood she has dragged through the millennia. Too bad you're now constrained by a more primitive morality, sucker. And, uh, oh, Miles, no. No. Oh, Jay, yes. Fine. I'm turning the mic over to, uh, the sexy witness. No secrets for me, pup. King of secrets, me. For instance, is the witness Gambit? Gambit spent his time with the sexiest folks around. The witness has Claire Miller and Ryan Smith lounging at the foot of his throne in this very confusing future prison. Gambit enjoy wit and wordplay. Well, the witness banter day and night with Claire and Ryan. Gambit show off his body when he can. The witness be practically nude. The witness ain't got nothing to hide. And Claire and Ryan... They wear their exceptionally casual future clothing well. So maybe to witness be Gambit, and maybe not. Got too much sexy around me to worry about that, none. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the liquor flows fast and loose, the beads fly, and the skulls are all on fire. As brood trouble hits the big easy. Easy.